welcome to the creative curmudgeon today i am joined by the poet teacher and purveyor of dreams matthias felina thank you for joining me today how, how are you i already asked you that before we started recording but i'll ask again for whoever might be listening uh i'm doing well i'm very i'm, I'm at a, a very relaxed period of my life after a lot of hecticness so feeling good how do you typically piece together like the imagery of a poem? When I'm writing in a more surreal mode, it's usually like some kind of setting or some kind of opening image happens. And then I write my way into that sort of phase shifting out of that and write into like category mismatches or illogical uh, structural arguments or something where there's a, an architecture that's impossible and then sort of play out what happens with it. Um, I don't know. I've got this, you asked me if I wanted to read something. I've got this poem I just wrote like two weeks ago when I was in Kenya. Thank you for reminding me. Yes. I, I would love if you would uh, like to read something. Yeah, maybe I could. I, I I so rarely remember any writing process, but I actually write, remember writing this one, so I can actually talk about it. Cool. Uh, it's called Terrible Baby. After the rain, you step outside. A tree has fallen in the field. Inside's hollow and rotted. This tree that had seemed so solid, so tall, now fallen in the field, that you swear had been an apartment building before the storm. An apartment building you stared at each night. Windows golden with privacies, old men on the balconies, loose faces dangling over cigarettes, bats rising from the chimney at dusk like a boy falling down an entire flight of stairs, hitting each stair, cartwheeling, almost seeming to come undone, and then landing unhurt on his feet. Go to the hollow and rotted out tree, dip a hand into the rot, pull out a single apple the size of a knuckle, as round as the cord that has ringed in your head since the morning you slid the wrong side of the knife across your skin and your body undid itself and a baby emerged from your undoneness a terrible baby the kind of baby only a king could love then the terrible baby takes his first steps dragging you undone as a storm behind him that's wonderful thank you thank you so much Thanks. Um, yeah, tell, tell us tell us about the the writing process. I, I was so I was teaching at the Kenyan Young Writers Program, and in that program, it's all generative based, and the the instructors write along with the students, and everybody's sort of on an equal playing field. So this came from a prompt where we all wrote down images and handed them around, and you had to start with somebody's image that is not your own and end with somebody's image who is not your own. Um, and I got uh, a tree has fallen and a baby takes his first steps. So, you know, immediately I had the sort of like problem solving game of trying to get from that to that. Uh, and then I just remember writing into the moment of the uh, the trees falling in the field, but then there was an apartment building there. And something about that 
was really appealing to me that so, that it was the kind of storm that knocks down trees that didn't exist there but it's the kind of storm that knocks down trees that used to be apartment buildings and not being able to like parse out any logic from that was appealing to me mm -hmm. and rather than try to figure out trying to sit with like the uh the dream logic of it or the the illogic of it, it was like I'm just going to hang out in the apartment building and sort of see what happens. And I wanted it. It reminded me of this apartment building that I used to live near where it must've been the kind of place where like folks had uh fixed income housing in, cause there was just always these old people sitting on the very, very small balconies mm -hmm. smoking and staring at everyone who walked by. And it was always this sort of like, I don't know. It was like this place of like, uh, like instant fable and instant oracle of like, like here, here's life, like that kind of place. So I wanted that. You and mean then, as far as just like the amount of like stories and just like kind of like energy that's like within that kind of place because of all the years, cumulative, cumulative years of life in there? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I guess so. But also just... Old men on balconies smoking cigarettes, staring, <laughs> like, <laughs> and like nothing more. No, 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 no more like delving into it than that for me. I'm just sort of like, well, fuck. All right. Um, I don't know. It's like one of those images of real life that feels like it comes out of like an Antonioni, Antonioni movie or something like that, like, mm -hmm. like urban fables of, of just visual. Um, and then the moment I got really sort of deep into the apartment building, I was like, all right, time to abandon that uh, and go to the, go back to the tree and then I was in the middle of writing in the class and I was like, oh, they got to pull something out of the tree. And uh, so I just asked the class, like, give me an image of something that's, that's like can fit in your hand. And someone said an apple. So, uh, so I threw an apple in there to see what would happen. And somehow the apple being as round as a cord made sense. Cord, C-H-O-R-D. And then somehow that became something about uh, the anniversary of my little brother's death. The first anniversary of his breath, death was coming up. And like that, for reasons that I can't parse, just like sort of conjured him for me. And I wanted to write something that seemed somehow both like a kid self-harming, but also something out of a fairy tale happening. And uh, so sliding the wrong side of the knife across your skin and undoing yourself. And then not having injury ever, but just un undoing and undoneness. And like the, how that can be both self-injury or like bread that's not yet baked was appealing mm. to me. And also just that it's a dumb sounding word was appealing to me. Um, 
And then I wrote the kind of baby only a king could love. And I was like, oh, damn, that's good writing. So that was like a moment. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was very proud of that line. And, uh, and I think because I got to that line in the first draft, I was like, oh, this is a keeper. And I went back and spent a couple of days revising it and like you felt like the whole poem was a was a keeper because like you got to that line and you're like oh yeah there's there must be something to like the rest of this that i could like you know dig out if like this line kicks so much ass yeah like when if i if i arrived at something that both surprised me and impressed me mm-hmm. then it clearly was one to sort of put pressure on and keep around yeah and uh yeah and then i went back and did little small things. I, I switched it to second person in the middle and with the imperative voice of go to the hollow and rot that tree dip a hand into. It was just a character doing that before. And and then in that way of editing, I just sort of tried to instill all these little internal rhymes of uh, you know, the hollow and rotted and seemed so solid, fallen and it's so tall and not fallen, you know, and tried to put a little like sing song fairy tale voice into it or nursery rhyme voice into it while it also has this sort of cascading run on sentence. And um, so it was like the only, the only sentence that was in the first draft that still in it, the way I wrote it is the kind of baby only a king could love. And I know everything else changed, but it was like arriving at that, that made me, trust that this was something that I wanted to say to the world. Um, I, yeah, I was curious uh, as far as like what you were saying about internal rhyme and whatnot, like how often you like kind of what takes precedent when doing like word choice, whether it's like more often just like capturing like a single strong image or kind of replacing words to make them uh flow together whether there's alliteration internal rhyme like etc yeah I, I mean i think even after asking the question you probably were like well that's not a binary <laughs> you know? well sure yeah I, I know it's not but like i'm just curious like where like, you're where, more often where like your brain goes there's there's something about the editing process and like the revision process that's so exciting and creative to me because it's the place to like let all of those kind of almost choices hover around without having to like uh select one alone mm-hmm. that inevitably you know I, I i quote this a lot even though i'm not actually quoting something but just paraphrasing something i heard once that may or may not be true but jonathan swift in a, a letter to a, a younger writer who had asked advice about writing responded uh just just get the syllables in the right place mm-hmm. and like that like inevitably like when when it sounds right it also means more you know and yeah. like when the the music is right the images are somehow stronger um and you know there's there's a way that like the music is the deciding factor, but it's also the thing that allows the other things in a poem to uh, 
to do their job most fully or to be most evocative or to be most interesting or bizarre or affecting or you know fill in the blank positive adjective um which is like very funny also in writing prose because certainly there are writers who write that way on a sustained level over a novel but a lot of the times there, there has to be like sentences that are just like you turn the light off <laughs> you know and like, right uh that that don't do anything with that sort of like gathering up and aspiring toward musicality um i'm curious um going back to what you were saying about your your younger brother how something in the poem like kind of evoked that image out of you but you weren't quite sure like what it was um i'm curious if you often have that experience with things that you end up putting out into the world where you have like this relation to, to it, but you don't necessarily know why, or do you more often have like a concrete idea of like, Oh, this lamp represents this in my mind. Yeah. The former it's always like, like I have a, I have a book that I did with a photographer, John Pack. It's called the depression. And it's all these fables about sort of living with chronic depression and almost none of them could I explain like what is the the allegorical explanation of it, but they all sort of hover around trying to tell the story of that as as clearly as I can, which telling it autobiographically is not as clearly as I can tell things. I'm telling it in a sort of like clinical and direct way never seems to get at the actual feeling of, of, of the emotional. Like there's something about, for me, like the fabulous or surrealist event on the page that speaks to or represents like the emotional event more than describing emotions. You feel like there's more truth to it than like somebody trying to apply logic to their own life, but like not really seeing the whole picture because they're them and they're trapped in it. Like, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, only for me. I wouldn't apply this to anybody else or like expect anybody else to to hold by those structures. But like, like I'm, you know, and as a poet, I'm in the position of like, I don't have to think about readership, you know, instead of like, there's, there's not there's not an issue of like trying to either convey information factually or you know cultivate a purchasing audience it's sort of whoever like ends up actually wanting to read my shit it's sort of like out of like a peculiar networking of of events so it's like i get to like sort of hold on to whatever whatever unexplainable and irrational sort of ethos <laughs> I have for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there's like a way that's like the only way I feel like I can talk about um, my internal experience uh, in a way that feels true for me is through that fabulous or surrealist urge. I'm curious. Um... And I'm I'm also asking because I remember I, I showed you some some poems of mine and they weren't 
written necessarily with like overarching themes in place and then you read them and you're like you kind of have some family issues don't you jason (laughs) um and i'm curious with you obviously that you have books where there's really uh concrete themes throughout for each one be it you know destruction myths or like starting businesses or like games or whatever but i'm curious if you thought in advance like i'm going to write a book about destruction myths and then go from there or did you uh notice themes and then after the like after the fact did you notice themes and then retroactively say i'm going to make these games or whatever does that make sense yeah i think i i I get really obsessed with little rhetorical forms um so i was studying a lot of myth and fable uh in grad school settings and like and just thought it was funny to start writing silly ones and then kind of got into it and wrote a like i think like 120 or 130 of those and then around that same time i found an antique guide from the nebraska education department of games for for kids mm-hmm. And the voice and, you know, they were all sort of little squares of text that looked like prose poems. And they were all in this sort of peculiarly distant and kind of vapid voice. And uh, instantly I just identified with that and was like, I want to write, I want to write these poems. And then like around the same time, I like found a book of, you know, of, Mesopotamian and Babylonian spells and got obsessed with that speaking voice and found a book or or have always been obsessed with historical markers and then I sort of text in this. I like any of these little rhetorical forms that are the rules are obvious instantly. Like if you say in the beginning, like the reader instantly knows like the whole structure of what is going to come. So then you get to play around inside that form and mess it up or undo it or uh, you know, zig against the zag, uh, and it's the same. Like I'm, I'm, I, I love the tradition of um, forms that are forms of of, of rhyme and meter, um, but I don't enjoy writing inside them. But I love that play of like the reader already knows how everything's going to work here, so the the writer's job is to uh, work against expectations to to sort of parallel or confuse and conflate them and also to fill them in such a way that is still uniquely that that artist's self Mm -hmm. i love finding little things like games or business plans or uh you know other stuff and dreams obviously (laughs) so you then decided in advance for each of those works like i'm going to have this be like my theme and then just like all the writing is like pointing to that theme like off the bat is that correct yeah i don't know i mean the form the form gets regular and then the theme gets sort of kind of figured out like like the depression is controlled by its sort of emotional theme and then inside that i knew i wanted them to be fables so they're short narratives. Uh, 
the business plan book, the I'm a very productive entrepreneur, ended up being a book that was about escapism and about loss and about sort of how to fill in the the gaps of of grief. Eric Paul, when I was doing a class with him, he brought up like just casually like, oh, yeah, you know, you'll you'll we're, I don't know what we were talking about, like what poem exactly. But he was like, yeah, you'll figure it out. You know, it's totally normal for a poet to do, you know, 15, 16 rewrites of a poem. He, he said it to me as if it wasn't like daunting that he was like saying that, oh, yeah, you know, 15 and 16 rewrites. No big, no big deal. Um, but I'm and I'm, I'm seeing by the look on your face right now that like you're like, yeah. Of course, like, is, is that, do you often rewrite to like that extent? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I throw away a lot of shit. Uh, I, I, I overwrite knowing that because I'm just, I like the writing process and also knowing that I'm not going to save everything I write. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, every once in a while the muse comes along and just sprinkles a little muse dust on you and the thing that you write in the first draft becomes essentially the, the thing in the last draft. Mm -hmm. um, but usually it's some process of really like months or years of kind of sitting with like, I'm, I just handed in the final, final version of my next book, to Big Lux Books. And I think there's, The first poems in that book are from 2013 and there's probably poems in there that I revised into the 30 or 40 times. I was surprised to learn that uh, getting to getting to know you a little more that you were really into emo music <laughs> and I'm I'm not that familiar with with emo other than just like, you know, the, the basics and whatnot. So take what I say with like a grain of salt or whatever it's but I was surprised because what I have heard of emo was a lot more um, transparent. It was a lot more literal. Um, whereas your stuff is very not literal, um, at least to the outsider. And I was curious if it inspires you in some way that is like not obvious. Probably like that drive toward and detractors would say, and you know, in, in the world of, any musical genre, of course, in the subgenres, so I'm sort of like into emo before it hits the malls, uh, like up to but not including Thursday and everything that follows. You're into the underground shit. Yeah, I'm into the '90s shit. The electric, sure, the, the basement stuff, uh, and that like that drive toward like trying to reach absolute sincerity through the music is sort of the thing that affects me in in just like all the punk rock stuff that I, I, I love and and like that lack of sort of I don't know ideological or detractors would say performative sincerity like guides my like dislike of uh, all la punk <laughs> you, you all, dislike all, all la punk. punk is that what you're saying yeah pretty much pretty much across the board all of it <laughs> hmm. including like the old like x and like that generation as well i like the germs 
Um, but yeah, X never did it for me. I like I like the roots rock stuff that comes out of out of the LA punk scene and sort of X lead into that, of course. But like sure. And I think it's just like that sort of like that intense and kind of self-flagellating sincerity that that gets me with with emo and like shitty screamo stuff and like the 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 falling on the ground writhing while while still singing stuff like it's so ridiculous and such obvious like goofball basement theater but like uh that's kind of the litmus test for me in my own writing is like you know I, I, I like getting to like the dancing while crying kind of moment in anything where even if I'm being obscure, even if I'm being like willfully unreadable or cryptic, that uh, I know it's coming from a place of uh, real sincerity. Even if I'm being silly, even if I'm like doing something cartoonish, that I'm, for me at least, even if no one's ever going to parse out the connection, that it's tied to some actual sincere thing that I'm trying to say to the world. So I think that is probably the vibe. And also just the like, you know, that that late 80s and early to mid 90s, like DIY impulse is and that gift culture element and the uh the the choice to put the art first and not worry or not expect any money to arise out of it or any sort of cachet to arise out of it is very dear to my heart still yeah and that makes sense and for both of those fields that seems like i'm I'm sure you didn't get into poetry to make a lot of money so i mean i'm i'm sure I'm, I'm sure that's very applicable um but like with emo like if somebody is like you know really getting crawling on the floor getting into it but they know that these lyrics and these emotions that are being conjured are like clearly about like a relationship or whatever not to like get into a cliche about emo but like you know let's say for example it's about a relationship whereas with you what you're saying is that you often don't know what something is necessary or why it's about this thing but that it like you're you're still tapping trying to tap those like same emotions like that level of like sincerity or whatever and i'm wondering how you know when it becomes do you just have like a warm feeling and then you're just like this is this is something like this is something sincere even if i don't understand it yeah it's also part of the revision process too like sort of reading things out loud and calling bullshit on yourself Mm -hmm. is it's nine tenths of my revision process is just rereading stuff out loud and they're like, yeah, that was that was me trying to sound like I've read Spencer. That was me trying to like do a thing because I I was reading too much Ashbury that week. That's to me, you know, like when I'm doing these sort of aesthetic moves rather than uh or the aesthetic moves take dominance over the attempt to like you know, say something that I want people to hear. <laughs> uh is when I like end up cutting things. Um, so it's kind of like the feeling that, that anyone has when it, when they are being sincerely themselves versus like when they say something or act a certain way. And then there's just like that inherent like, no, this isn't this isn't me. This is like some other like influence or something. Is that what it yeah. is for you? Yeah. And now that you put it that way, I might 
I might only know when I'm being myself by reading the stuff I've written. And in that moment of sort of reflecting on the version of myself that I performed those months or days or years before on the page and sort of if I still connect to it and it still feels true, that might be like the way that I identify myself. I'm curious, uh, referring to you specifically as a student, um, poetry is notoriously dense, at least as far as the stereotype goes. Would you agree? Well, let's assume that you agree for, for a second. Um, did you ever think that it was that? Did you ever think of it as like this sort of thing that was like harder to tackle because of how much more notoriously dense it is, which differs from person to person, obviously, or how did you go about like kind of becoming a student of it? Yeah, I don't know why I was into it. I like, I remember I, I saw Adrian Rich read when I was, I think, 13 at George Mason. Like I had the luck of being in a suburb right next to a university that brought in poets. So I saw her read and I saw W.S. Merwin read that same year. And I thought their shit was so difficult. And now I'm like, you know, I love them both for being very clear and very direct. And uh, I mean, there must have been something about the arcaneness that was appealing to me and sort of the the nicheness. Um, but also, I just remember, like, I read Tiger, Tiger when I was in elementary school and just had that feeling like Dickinson talks about of having the top of our head blown off um, and just wanting to read that poem over and over again to create that feeling in my mind again. Um, and that's sort of the first time I remember sort of being hooked on poetry. So like, I'm attracted to very difficult work and also very clear work. And I like and, you know, as a 48 year old who's been reading a shit ton of poetry since I was 13, like, I like the different ways that language gets played with and explored in all the different kinds of poetry. I think when I was a younger and less like sort of trained and sophisticated reader, uh, I just liked reading poems, whether I got them or not, it was like still fun. Like, I remember reading, I don't know, like Corso or Burroughs or some of, some of the slightly more obtuse beats as like mm -hmm. a teenager and being like, I have no idea what he's talking about, but like, this is great. You know, and just. It's kind of like what you're saying about your own work, if I'm understanding you correctly, where like you may not understand like why you like it, but there's just like something about that combination of words where you're like, fuck yeah. Yeah. And just something about like also like the cultural act of reading poems and how, uh, I mean, it's, it's been an obvious like resurgence in the last like decade of kind of poetry's slightly more centered positioning, but like it felt, it felt like inherently, and I, I couldn't have articulated this as a kid, but like, it felt like inherently rebellious and inherently sort of anti-capitalist and anti-authoritarian to to give a shit about poetry, um, mm -hmm. and 
and not getting a poem was part of that too. Like reading something and being like, somebody published this. So, and somebody took time to write it. So there's something behind it. And I don't have access to that, but I can still read this and I can do something with it. Like that, that was exciting. And uh, not in a problem solving way, but in a kind of experiential way. Like maybe it's kind of like a similar impulse of like listening to noise music or something too, where it's like, you know, some some dude in a like behind a table like banging on some shit. It's like in any other context, this would be awful. But because we've like decided to pay attention to this, it has this sort of allure and it has this sort of like feeling of of the sophistication of finding something attractive inside of this like awfulness. Abstract poetry is the noise music of the written word. Is that is that what you're saying? I think I'm saying that. The, the, cool. the, the parallel doesn't work uh, in other ways, but I think the, the, in the act of attention, yeah, in like the the cultivation of attention and the sort of using attention first rather than meaning first or uh, understanding first. Mm -hmm. There's something in that. Um, I'm curious, uh, circling back around to uh, dreams, which you're not doing right now other than doing it for pets, but I'm uh, curious how you, because basically the gist of it is that you travel around uh, and stay at multiple places throughout the year and have a subscription service. And then you get up really early and then just kind of like go around and deliver dreams to people's houses. And then when they wake up, they see something that you wrote. And then the idea is, Oh, I dreamt about this. Is that, is that correct? I guess so. I'm not sure about that last part. I'm not sure what they do with it, but yeah, that's the ideal scenario is I, I bike around and leave them little pink envelopes at their doors in the mornings. And inside there's a little, surrealist narrative a little dream that is all written in second person and has their name at the top so it's set up to be their dream and uh yeah and then i finish delivering and i sit down and drink as much coffee as humanly possible and start writing again yeah so that's that's that was going to be my follow-up question so do you write everything fresh for that following day or are these ideas that you've like kind of had around and you're like you know this might go go good for steve's dream yeah some are ideas i mean i've got like a a you know notes thing in my phone and on my computer that is probably like 50 pages of just things that are like you know open a soup can and it's full of toledo you know or like just like weird shit that i'll just write out and then sometimes i'll scan through that until something pops up as seemingly fruitful to write about that day mm -hmm. uh sometimes i'll hit random article on wiki until something pops up that you know and just kind of like do some aleatory process that throws some language or an image in front of me and then i step into it and then sometimes it's just uh ideas that i have so it's it's kind of throwing all of the like tricks of all the process tricks of uh, getting started all together at once. Like I have a form. I know it's going to start out pretty much almost all of them start off like 
you're in some location and something happens. Yeah. And so immediately I have the tension of like, why are they in this place? Why did this thing happen? What mismatch defines some dream logic rules that can play out? Um, but it's also like, there's something about just getting like three words on a page and like the improv mind and the fortune teller cold reader mind come up and you start to, uh, to, you know, branch out from there. How are you going to apply that to pets? Or is it going to be closer to what scientists understanding of what a pet dream is like actually like? No, it's, they're, they're just human dreams and pet, pet, pet masks. They're, they're just like, Sweet. a lot. They're a lot furrier. There's more treats and napping. There's walks, you know, there's, uh, but they are, I'm, I'm the, uh, the best I can understand of anybody saying from quick online research is like, you know, animals probably dream about things they do in real life mm -hmm. based on no knowledge, but just guessing because of like, that's how humans dream. So probably when you see your dog looking like he's running after a rabbit in his dream he's probably dreaming about running after a rabbit not about being in the movie chariots of fire that's what i would that's what i would assume <laughs> but my, my my dog is 18 and yeah. uh we we can hear him dream like audibly like he does like like, like when he's like dreaming um and you know one would assume it's just about you know him eating or whatever or chasing a, a much larger dog uh but I also kind of wonder about his own like existential dread, like at this age, if he like has like regrets, especially because he was like adopted when he was like one ish. And so like what his life was like up until that point is like a complete mystery. He may have children that he like never, never saw or whatever. Um, but yeah, I've always wondered if like existential dread like shows up in like dogs dreams. They do in the ones I write. Cool. <laughs> Nothing I write can never avoid in some existential dread. I just um, heard one about uh, a lawyer coming up and and the dog's father wanting to reclaim his name uh, from the dog, but the dog never met his father. So it's this sort of like bio dad anxiety dream. Uh, and then the name ends up being just a bunch of like cryptic symbols that are unpronounceable. Well, that sounds amazing. Um, do you have any advice for people that are uh, wanting to, you know, tap into their inner weird? Like, what are some good exercises to kind of like detach themselves from like the logic of trying to make sense of things? Yeah, I mean, I think the primary thing is just trusting whatever trusting whatever like the sort of next image comes to mind without uh, critical, I don't know, I was going to say critical feedback, but that's the wrong, and a critical pushback. You know, I think like the, the basic element of dream logic is just a kind of nextness that whatever happens, it's assumptive that that is correct for it to have happened. You know, so if the rock walks in and hands you a key made out of ice, you know, it's, of course, Dwayne the Rock Johnson would walk into your red walled room and hand you a key made of ice, and that's going to unlock what? It's going to unlock, you know, the the 
ice door that's outside rapidly melting in the heat. And then you have to unlock it real fast. And when you do, what do you find behind the door? It's you know, a bunch of beetles. And the beetles are all have your face on the bottom. So it's going with your first instinct, basically. Like if you picture the rock and he walks in and he has a key made of ice because that's what you think of, then there must be like something to that. And and people should like, it'd be good for them to like really grab onto that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think like balancing, balancing like a, uh, an orderliness and a mundanity with like the, the strangeness, but letting the strangeness lead the way and letting the, the mundanity sort of, uh, keep things clean you know you can keep the keep the story going mm -hmm. um, but yeah it's like a as far as like sort of tapping into that thing you know not not a big fan of the beats uh as people or writers but that you know that first thought best thought is great for for drafting you know mm -hmm. great, great for like kind of really exploring um the unique and peculiar weird landscape of the self so, um well that's beautiful um and surrealists love automatic writing and i love all that kind of stuff too well thank you thank you so much for for joining me today this is this has been lovely thank you this podcast is made possible by listeners like you Please consider setting up a small monthly donation at patreon.com backslash the creative curmudgeon, or consider making a one-time donation at venmo.com backslash the creative curmudgeon. Until next time, so long.